Well, good morning, church, again. Uh, welcome to Salem, welcome to our modern service. Uh, my name's Tim Power, I'm the pastor of modern worship here. Um, a sweater was a bad idea, I think. <laughs> also, uh, I'm, I'm being told to use this this morning. I, I really don't like these things that are attached. I'd like to be able to say random things over here that nobody can hear, and this, doesn't, this is not very good for that. Also, I don't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> Like, what do you do with your hands when you're speaking? And so my hands might just kind of rise up randomly, or if there's any offensive gestures, they are not meant to be. It's just, I just have no idea what to do right here. Um, I want to welcome you and thank you for being here and worshiping with us. We are in the, uh, the, the final week of our Repeat After Me uh, sermon series. We have been deep diving into the Lord's Prayer in this sermon series, and uh, you know, I've learned a lot from this sermon series, just doing the research and, and uh, just jumping into these principles that we can learn from the Lord's Prayer. Now, um, in case you're visiting and you haven't been here the whole, the whole series, uh, the Lord's Prayer, or as if, if you grew up Catholic, you might have heard of it uh, called the Our Father. This is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples when they asked a question that probably a lot of us ask. Have you ever asked this question, how should I pray? What, 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 what is the dynamic here? What do I do? How do I pray? So Jesus gave them a, a pattern, a template of how you can pray. And then um, what we've been doing is basically taking verse by verse. There, there's five simple instructions that throughout the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gives people about how you can pray in an effective way. And uh, the five simple instructions are basically this. The first one is this, to address God. And I said to look up, that's kind of our, our compass point on that, is to look up. Now, when we, when we say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, that's us looking up to God and, and putting him in, in, him in his proper place. The second is to, to do this, to invite God to do something, okay? To invite God to do something in our lives. The third was to ask God to provide in our lives. The fourth was to ask God to forgive us. Forgive us our trespasses, and to also make us a people that forgive. Uh, and then we talked about God, asking God to move, help us moving forward, pushing into the future with the help and the providence of God. Well, we have come to the end of the Lord's Prayer, and uh, what we're going to do is wrap this up by exploring these words that was the last thing you heard uh, before the Amen, was Matthew 613b, and this is from the King James translation. I'll say why we're getting this from the King James. We don't often use King James around here, but uh, there's a special reason why we're doing that today. Uh, it's this, Matthew 613b says this, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Now these words are powerful, these words are poetic, and don't they make an awesome ending to this prayer? But there's a problem, which is that Jesus probably didn't say these words. Um, let me quickly explain what I mean. Um, if you look at any modern translation of the New Testament, so uh, a lot of times we use the Common English Bible here, uh, there's lots and lots of different modern translations. No modern translation will have this, and uh, to understand why they don't have this section of scripture uh, as part of the biblical canon, we need to understand a little bit about how we got the Bible that we got, okay? How we have the New Testament that we read all the time, that we believe is the word of God and, and that can transform our lives. Well, after Jesus died in the first century, Christians used the Old Testament as their scripture. In addition, though, they had these teachings of Jesus, which were, at the time, they didn't have them written down. They were, they were passed 
uh, from people in conversation and in public teaching amongst Christian groups of people in Christian churches. They would talk about the teachings of Jesus. Uh, eventually, the gospel writers uh, that we know of, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these, these folks actually wrote, or probably more likely the people that were their followers, actually wrote down their gospel account of what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And in a series of church councils uh, in the first few hundred years of the church, um, uh, church leaders got together and declared that certain books would be considered canon or part of what we now consider the Bible. Now, when they're putting together, when, when any translator or, or uh, anybody's putting together a canon of Scripture, what they want to do is find the oldest text. Okay, You want to go back to the original source, right? So what they did was they got the oldest versions of all of these, and that's how they compiled Scripture. Now, the King James Version Bible is the only modern... Uh, somewhat modern translation, the only English translation that we use that actually has this as part of the canon of scripture. But it was not in most of the early manuscripts of, of Matthew. In fact, it doesn't even show up till several, several hundred years in the uh, Byzantine era. So this is hundreds of years even after Jesus lived on the earth. So it's probably a pretty accurate thing to say that Jesus didn't say this or it would have been in the earlier um, earlier forms of Matthew. And so now sometimes it's put in in parentheses, although it has been kept around traditionally in the Lord's Prayer in Protestant churches. A lot of Catholic churches don't have this part of the prayer as part of it. So that was a really, really teachy part of today's sermon. But I think it's fascinating because we say this all the time uh, in our church, and we do this every week. Those probably weren't the words that Jesus actually said. However, they are biblical. And here's why I say, now you said, well, you just said it wasn't in the Bible. It is in the Bible. In fact, what most scholars believe was that the, the Byzantine church brought out a, a scripture from the Old Testament. It was a prayer of David when he was consecrating the temple. And what he did was, uh, this is the, the prayer of David in 1 Chronicles 29:11. To you, O Lord, belong greatness and power, honor, splendor, and majesty, because everything in earth and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingship, and yours is the is, and you are honored as head of all. So, this scripture, can you see some similarities? Right, it's talking about the power, the honor, the kingdom, the glory of God as head over all. Now, I, why did the Byzantine Church decide to take this, and when, as most scholars think, tack this on to Jesus' teaching about prayer? Well. I think it's actually very much in keeping when we read, when we read, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. It's very much in teaching with Christ, uh, uh, with Christ's teaching on prayer. And let me explain why. Um, first, I gotta repent for a moment. For three weeks, I've said something that was a little bit inaccurate. And uh, somebody called me out on this. I, I've said this a couple weeks in a row, three weeks, I believe, uh, to be sure, where I said there's no wrong way to pray. Did anybody hear me say that? In weeks past, there's no wrong way to pray. Now, in my defense, and I love to be in my defense, um, I do believe that that is an accurate sentiment that God does not judge us for our syntax. He doesn't judge us for saying the wrong thing in the sense of getting our words jumbled up or not including every aspect of those five things we can learn from the Lord's Prayer. He does want to hear us. We're his children. He loves us and wants to hear our voices. However, somebody brought this fact to me after one of the sermons and said, you know, it's kind of inaccurate. You know, Jesus actually does say that there's 
good way, a good way to pray and a bad way to pray earlier in that same chapter. You know, and I'm, I, I listen to the person, I, uh, and because I'm so full of grace and patience <laughs> and humility, buckets of humility, I mean, like, more humility than you can shake a stick at, I've got... <laughs> Um, I'm kidding. If you don't know me, I'm kidding. But uh, so, so I listened to the person, and I, I took it in, and I was trying to hear their argument and looked at the scripture, and, and then I said, okay. I said, uh, can you show me your pastor's license? <laughs> kidding. I didn't say that. I didn't really say that. <laughs> no, but it, it, it was a good point and a fair point. Uh, again, I do believe the sentiment is not that, that God cares about the words in the order, uh, but what he does care about is something Jesus points to earlier in this chapter, which is our posture does matter. And in fact, um, even more, our intent matters. Our intent when we go to God. And what I want to do is take a look at his teaching. Before Jesus goes into the Lord's Prayer, he does a teaching that's saying, basically, here's what I'm trying to avoid, Okay. And so, starting in the beginning of Matthew chapter 6, it says this, Be careful that you don't practice your religion in front of people to draw their attention. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Whenever you give to the poor, don't blow your trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they get praise from people. I assure you that that's the only reward they'll get. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you may give to the poor in secret. Your Father, who sees what you do in secret, will reward you. When you pray, don't be like hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners so that people will see them. And I assure you, that's the only reward they'll get. But when you pray, go to your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in heaven, uh, who is present in that secret place, your father who sees that you, what you do in secret will reward you. Now, see, I, I believe that the Pharisees are guilty of a sin in this passage that is probably kind of mind-boggling for people. From, from the outside, doesn't it look like these guys are doing what God wants? From the outside. See, they go to church. They pray. They even feed the poor. They give to the poor. So some people would say, what's wrong with that? But Christ is, says, your sin is repugnant to me. Christ looks at the way they're doing things, and he said, I don't want any of that. That's the worst kind of sin. And I'd be looking at that like, what, what sin are you talking about? They go to church, they pray, they feed the poor. Isn't that what we all want? Isn't that what Christianity should look like? Isn't that what our religion should look like? Sub- they are committing a sin that Jesus Christ condemned more than any sin on the face of the earth. Now see, there were some people around Jesus, religious leaders especially, who thought that Jesus was soft on sin, okay? The reason they thought that was because he dined with all these people that they thought were horrible. He was dining with uh, prostitutes and thieves and and tax collectors who who are even worse than the tax collectors today back then. So these, these were people that nobody wanted to be around that everybody could look down on, okay? But he's saying no. That's not the sin that I'm most concerned with. They're committing the sin that Jesus condemned more than anything else. He knew that those other sins, prostitution, stealing, lying, brawling, see, all of those sins were sins that paled in comparison to the terrible sin, the destructive nature of the sin that the Pharisees were committing at the time. 
It's a sin that we all hate. I'll bet everyone in this room hates this sin when they see it in other people and they don't know it when they, when it, they do it themselves. The sin that I'm talking about is pride. It's the sin of pride. Christ is bothered more by pride than by any other sin because it's far less obvious. It's far more destructive. If you think about it, the scripture teaches us that the devil became the devil through the sin of pride. I think that probably makes pride one of the worst sins that we can think of, and yet in our hierarchy of sin, we put a lot of other things above pride, and we kind of think of pride as this minor character flaw. Well, they're a great leader, but they've got pride, but they're still great. Or they have, um, they have pride, but at least they're not a, a drinker, or they're not stealing things from people. Pride is a minor thing, but Jesus says, no, it's the main thing. Now, pride is unique among sin because it's competitive in nature. Your pride is competing with my pride. See, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. It only gets pleasure out of having more than the next person. We sometimes say that people are proud of their money or proud of their intelligence or proud of their good looks, but they're not. They're proud of having more money than someone else, or they're proud of having better looks than somebody else, or proud of being more clever than somebody else. If everyone else were as rich and smart as good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud of. See, it's in the comparison that the pride, the pride gets the pleasure, the, the, the pleasure of being better than the other. We sometimes mistake pride for other sins. So we sometimes look at somebody who works desperately to make more and more money, and we say, well, that person's greedy, but, but I don't think that's really true. If you think of somebody who's a, who's a millionaire, you might think... Um, but they keep on wanting to work for more millions. Well, couldn't you get anything you want as a millionaire to live any kind of lifestyle you want? But what makes you want to be even more than that? Most of the time, it's because you see somebody who has more than you. And so being rich isn't enough. Being richer is the only thing that satisfies. I think that the, the sickest and the most problematic kind of pride, and this is probably what bothered Jesus more than any other kind of pride, is religious pride. Religious pride. Because religious people can even use pride to look holy. Okay, get this. Religious people use pride to look holy. Have you ever heard of like a, a teacher trying to get somebody, uh, a student to use their pride to help them to stop doing something? They say, they say, you're better than this. Okay, what you're doing is appealing to their pride. You're better than this. And Christians can do this all the time. We can say, we could actually beat down certain sins. We could beat down lust and say, I'm better than lust. We can beat down all sorts of addictions and say, I'm better than that, and come out on top. And guess what? The devil is happy with that. The devil is just as happy with you not sinning over here if he can make you sin in a much deeper way with pride. If he can set up the dictatorship of pride on the inside of your heart so that you think that every gain that you make is your own, he's, he's totally fine with you giving up a sin over here and a sin over here if he can make the cancer of pride take root on the inside of all of us. And see, that's what Jesus saw in the Pharisees. He said, you do the right stuff all the time. But what I see on the inside of you, the way you approach me, it's disgusting. I want none of it. I don't want your good works because you give yourself credit for your good works. 
See, the devil has no problem saying, I'll help you overcome lust if you give in to pride. I'll help you come overcome addiction as long as I can convince you that it's your goodness that got you there. I think it might be these kind of people that Jesus was referring to in Matthew chapter 7 when he said this, on judgment day, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and expel demons in your name and do lots of miracles in your name? Then I'll tell them I've never known you get away from me, you people who do wrong. And he's saying all these things, they're religious actions, right? And they sound like religious actions that, that, that are good, right? But he's saying, no, I want none of it. I don't want that from you because you're doing that in your strength. You're not looking to me. What they had was religion. They didn't, they didn't, um, they used their religious actions to build their kingdom, their power, and their glory. Did you notice that about it? What, all of these things that the Pharisees were doing, when they, when they prayed in the streets, they were building their kingdom. They were building their power, their glory. If they prayed the Lord's Prayer, they would say, mine be the power, mine be the kingdom, mine be the glory. Jesus did not come to bring us religion, because that's what it is. When you're trying to use your good works to set up your kingdom, your power, your glory, that's religion. Jesus came to bring relationship. Jesus does not want your religious activity. He wants your heart. He wants to transform us by his love. Jesus didn't come to make you a better, kinder person. Jesus came to make you a new kind of person. Someone so humbled by his presence that we're transformed. See, here's the thing. You can't be... You can't be um, prideful in the presence of God. If you truly experience the presence of God, and I, I hope that some of you do, did experience his presence in worship today, but when you come face to face with the God of the universe, a strange thing happens. You feel so small. You feel so insignificant, and yet you feel more loved than you can imagine. That's the dichotomy of experiencing the power and the love of the true God of the universe, is that you feel so small, but you feel so loved. You want to live differently. You don't, you don't want to live for your kingdom anymore. You want to be light that points to the kingdom of God. You want to be salt in his kingdom. Who likes salt? Anybody on a low salt diet isn't the worst thing on earth? Um, so uh, when, I, when I put salt on something, when I put salt on corn, you know what I never say afterwards? Man, that was great salt. I love that salt. Let's get more of that salt. No, I say that was great corn, because what does the salt do? It, it, it actually uh, it points to the other. That's what Christians do, and it says that we're the salt of the world. What, what people come away with when they experience somebody who's truly, their heart's given over to God, is they don't say, that person's awesome. They say, God is awesome. This person whose life is totally given over for his kingdom, his power, his glory. Man, I want to live for that God, too. They don't just want to follow you around. They want to follow around the God who saved you. That's what happens when we truly experience the God of this universe and his transforming power. We feel so small. We can't have pride. But we feel so much love. And we say, you've got to feel this. You've got to be in this. And it draws everyone to you. That's what happens when we experience truly knowing God, truly loving God, and praying this prayer, I think it's a great way for us to put ourselves in our place. 
So I still, I'm still going to pray it, even though I know it probably wasn't the words Jesus, Jesus taught. I'm still going to say, God, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. But not mine, God. I, I don't want this for me. I'm so small in your presence, but I'm so loved by, by you, God. I want to live for your kingdom, your power, your glory. That's the transformation that happens when we get in the presence of God and we experience him 